Hello again, everyone, and welcome to How Digital Technology Changes Work, the podcast from MWD Advisors. Uh, we've got another episode with me, Neil, and uh, Craig, my lovely colleague, um, with you again today. And we've got a few uh, sort of up-to-date au courant topics, as the French say, um, um, all about all about technology industry. Very good. Very yeah. Good. That just I don't know where that came from. It just came out of nowhere. Are you, are you um, going to deliver your segment in French? No. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. No, that really was probably about, that was probably about the extent of what I could do. Um, so we've got three topics for you. Um, actually, Craig, why don't you just say briefly what you're going to talk about? Okay, I, I'm going to talk about um, smart cows. And, and life on the edge and i'm also going to talk about the uh the problems with partial occlusions and unexpected appearances in uh like vision recognition systems and so on more on okay. that later okay cool and i think i'm going to be i'm going to be the uh, cheese in the sandwich today i'm because between your two pieces i'm going to talk about um um, the new open data initiative from Adobe, Microsoft, and SAP that was announced um, earlier this week. Which isn't at all cheesy. No. Well, maybe no. the way you tell it. I see it's, it's more meaty than cheesy. Ooh, right. Don't give it away. Okay, I won't. I won't. So, so Craig, let's uh, start us off with your tales of intelligent bovines. Indeed. Right. Okay. So I saw a, a story in the press the other day uh, talking about the problems with smart cows. Okay. So uh, uh, for the uninitiated or perhaps the unimaginative, uh, I should just clear up that I'm not uh, speculating on the woes of evil bovine geniuses. Um, instead, I'm ruminating. Aha, see what hey. I did there? Hey. Uh, on, on smart farming, smart agriculture and so on, agribusiness. And in particular, on the practice of uh, implanting subcutaneous IoT devices in cattle to monitor uh, their temperature and their even their chewing activities, apparently, and, and to track their movements and, and so on, and probably their other movements as well, for that matter. Um, let's not go into bovine bowels. Let's start with the morning. Uh, all being done, of course, in the uh, pursuit of, of data uh, to give early warning uh, diagnostics on cow's health and to spot. Uh, patterns when it's overlaid with, you know, uh, milk production data and so on that can make uh, recommendations on, on feeding schedules, environmental management, all that kind of stuff, uh, which is obviously very useful if you've got a particularly large herd. And um, so, I mean, today I'm not being drawn on the whys and wherefores of this practice itself and impact on, on farming methods, but I'm mentioning it really to illustrate why, why life at the edge, if you like, is, is such a difficult and dangerous place to operate sensitive uh, data gathering machinery and why you know, if you ignore real world events and, and operating conditions there at your peril you see because um i mean it's all too easy uh, to be taken in by uh, the ease with which you know powerpoint slides connote a very uh, simply defined future where all you have to worry about are technology issues process issues human cultural issues no, that's all <laughs> um, but what if you need to factor in bovine issues or, or more specifically in this case the damage which which your cows in your herd can do to your precious tech simply by by being cows you know, by inadvertently squishing a sensor because it's rubbing its one ton frame up against a fence or something where it's been implanted or up against another one ton cow uh, for that matter uh, and that's you know before you start factoring in 
all those other sort of technology in the wild issues around you know, network traffic and connectivity and roaming and interference and security and so on. Security, of course, you know, if somebody decides to hack your cow uh, and you have some, some kind of bovine botnet, uh, moving on. Um, so what I'm getting at really is if we uh, if we talk too much about, um, uh, if all we talk about is you know, digital enterprises, back office applications, processes, content workflows and so on for too much at the high level, ideal of how uh, information might flow back and forth uh, and how it might get done in quite a sanitized environment you risk forgetting that outside of the world of the knowledge worker and the call center and the online app and the fintech startup and so on there's a whole extra world of, of pain that you may need to contend with if you're working in an industry where you tend to get rather more dirt under your fingernails or, mm. or in farming's case, more than dirt even. Uh, you know, agriculture, construction, oil and gas exploration, uh, shipping, and, and so on. You know, operations, organizations, sorry, that operate there have much more in terms of real world factors to contend with than simply you know, customers' buying habits and so on. And I think, uh, I suppose it's been brought home to me uh, recently, all the more because I've been doing uh, quite a bit of work recently looking at how combinations of blockchain and iot and, and other tech are providing opportunities to shift the way that people think about managing supply chains affecting manufacturing and logistics and so on and potentially disrupting the whole way those ecosystems work together and there's a lot of focus on the integration between you know, blockchain services and iot uh, platforms from a technology perspective but of course none of these benefits are ever going to be realized if you can't take care of the computing at the edge from a in your sort of IoT angle, you know, protecting and powering and securing and communicating with your sensors, you know, whatever they're attached to or implanted in, you know, in, in manufacturing supply chain sense, uh, you know, smart containers and pallets and, and that kind of thing. You know, they need to be low power, they need to be resilient and tamper-proof, cow-proof, uh, and need to be tested, uh, probably quite literally to destruction. Because of course, if the data you elect to anchor into a blockchain or, or fuel some analytics or, or AI processing uh, that's originally come from these devices operating far beyond uh, the safe and secure confines of your company offices. If that's tasked with driving critical decision-making and it's being proffered up as uh, irrefutable evidence of some event, say if you're uh, tracking assets across a supply chain and there's food safety issues and so on uh, at stake, then do remember all this data is only as good as the cow it rode in on. So <laughs> in a nutshell, yes, shiny new things like blockchain and AI services and so on can do great things uh, with your IoT data. But none of this new tech can work miracles if you can't be confident about those edge devices you know, charged with the capturing and forwarding on and in some cases pre-processing of all that data in the first place. You know, the uh, increased reliance that your business is going to have on, a, on an IoT operation like this simply serves to reinforce the need for you to make sure you have all the necessary bases covered around you know, connectivity and power and security, performance, maintenance, resilience, and so on. Not just actually at the edge uh, where your you know, uh, smart pallets and smart cows might be, but all the layers of your organization onion as you peel it back uh, closer to your enterprise core. And you know, if you thought it was tough to secure uh, your, and service your operations in an office building or a flagship store, just imagine doing it in a muddy field, uh, miles from any building at all, or, or on a ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So it's great to see uh, case studies of digital transformation in the field when you literally mean a field. 
And I think they remind us uh, with a kind of extreme environments that your, you know, IoT edge computing, whatever industry you're in, is going to be at or possibly beyond the edge of your traditional operations. So it's going to come with its own challenges. And any IoT elements that you're seeking to plug into, say, a blockchain platform uh, from such a source needs to be properly treated. That whole part of your project needs to be super, super robust. Um, basically, you owe that much to the cows, man. Right on. <laughs> man. Move. Right on. Yeah, and I think um, it's a super example, isn't it? Because I think even when we talk about kind of field operations and distributed infrastructure, or we tend to talk about, you know, oil rigs or, um, or um, you know, people you know, going out and servicing cell phone towers or something like that. But when you're, I suppose you're, you're kind of talking about an ex in, in, in a way, an extreme case, because you're, if you're actually monitoring living things, then those are those are unpredictable. And like you said, they can mm. end up kind of banging into things or into each other or falling over or, you know, all kinds of things can happen. Indeed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, that has a knock on impact on um, boring things like business cases, because the more layers of stuff you need to worry about and the more complexities of stuff you need to worry about through those layers the more expensive the tech is mm. and so the return you're going to get from it needs to be greater um indeed yeah. so you need to worry about all that robustness and security and 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 so on in in the face of of unpredictable environments that's that's more cost that, that you need to worry about and uh, so it might well actually render something that looks quite attractive like you say from the confines of a cozy cubicle um, <laughs> renders it completely useless uh, when you think about the real world deployment yeah, yeah. It's a real world events, mate. That's what it all is. Mm. Okay, fantastic. Thanks, Craig. <clears throat> now, shall I talk about um, something a bit more kind of prosaic? Yes, the Open Cow Initiative or whatever you're... No, that's not that, is it? We're done with that. Open Data Initiative. Go for it. I, I like the idea of an Open Cow Initiative. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, yes, uh, let's talk about that. Um, earlier this week at uh, Microsoft's Ignite conference, uh, we saw something quite unusual. We saw the CEOs of Adobe and Microsoft and SAP um, personally standing together on stage and announcing a strategic partnership around what they're calling um, uh, their Open Data Initiative. Now, the fact that these three CEOs of these three huge companies all stood on stage together to make the announcement shows uh, I think that all three companies want to signal that this is a huge deal, mm. right? So you can, I suppose, I'm being a bit cynical, you could argue about how big a deal it is, but clearly that's what they want <laughs> to signal, <laughs> the fact that mm. they were all standing on stage together. It's not an easy thing to pull off. Um, so the obvious question is, well, why is it a huge deal? Let's just kind of wind back a bit first before we get to that. Let's talk about what it actually is. Fundamentally, the Open Data Initiative is all about, um, and I, I will oversimplify a bit, it's about creating a flipping great big data lake on Azure that all three companies will, will kind of connect into and will, um, will put and take their data from for their, their respective applications. So whether it's Microsoft Dynamics or SAP's portfolio of apps or Adobe's 
apps, around marketing, customer experience. Mm -hmm. The idea is that it's one shared data model. It's one shared uh, physical kind of instantiation of that model, which it's easy for uh, all three um, to get data in and out of. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's kind of what's on offer. So why is it a huge deal? Well, um, it kind of becomes obvious when you think about who those three are and what they have in common. So the thing they have in common is they all compete against Salesforce. Um, <laughs> so um, it's a huge deal um, because of that, principally. So as the announcement said, um, one of the things, it, many things it said was, in today's world, data is a company's most valuable asset. And you can argue with that, but I think it's certainly more important than it's ever been. And as, as you and I have spoken about a number of times before mm. on this podcast and also elsewhere, um, a modern digital strategy has data at its heart. You can't realize the potential benefits of, of digital technologies unless you have the ability to um, efficiently make sense of data and quickly take action based on that data and kind of create those feedback loops we've talked about so often between you know data you've collected insights and then to using that data to make uh, changes in in how you operate so clearly so no no, uh, no coincidence then that it was announced a week before dreamforce i believe or something like that wasn't it so you, you're right. There's no no coincidence. Coincidence. This is all happening around the same time as Dreamforce. Because at this week, at, um, it's also Dreamforce, and this week at Dreamforce, Sales just announced an initiative called Customer Three Hundred and Sixty <laughs> uh, that aims to create uh, essentially a seamless kind of customer integrated customer data view that works across its portfolio of marketing, sales, and service application portfolios. Right. So it's not just the ability to integrate them, but it is actually an integrated view. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget that Salesforce bought MuleSoft last year um, for about six and a half billion dollars. And MuleSoft was one of the very sort of tip top uh, market leading application integration platform vendors. So MuleSoft gives the Salesforce platform and Salesforce applications and, of course, Salesforce customers access to more data, right? Uh, which feeds into what Salesforce wants to do around Einstein, which is all about kind of AI powered, ML powered smart assists, as well as of course, helping customers drive operational improvements by connecting Salesforce applications to other applications that live elsewhere on premises and so on. And I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that MuleSoft technology is a key component in the development of this customer 360 <laughs> technology. So it all kind of comes together, right? So the Open Data Initiative from Adobe, Microsoft, and SAP is in large part a defensive play against Salesforce and MuleSoft. Mm. But it's potentially uh, kind of goes a bit further as SAP and Microsoft um, bring more applications into the picture. Uh, mm. um, when you look at the domains those applications operate, it's also it's not just you know the customer facing pieces around marketing sales and service it's also finance and operations etc 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 right all the supply chain pieces so um it's a it's a, a pretty interesting play but i think you and i as kind of uh kind of critical thinkers um 
and and our audience too we should be prepared to push back a little on it too particularly the name um because it, it's a, it's kind of it's called um an open data initiative um, and it's not open data by by other um assumed definitions of open really is it yeah so it's it's open it's, that's exactly my point so it's open as it pertains to crossing boundaries between adobe microsoft and sap fair enough but it's certainly not an open data initiative in any sense that open data proponents like the open data institute would recognize <laughs> yes um, yeah but I, I think there's something there's something in this though um it's it's worth it's worth pondering for a moment about what that might look like, right? So what would it take for this to, to, to kind of level up? Um, because I think there is maybe a future opportunity here for Adobe, Microsoft, SAP. Um, so I was looking around at um, the information provided by the Open Data Institute, which was founded by, among others, Tim Berners-Lee. So it's got serious kind of pedigree and, 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 and chops. Um, and the Open Data Institute, um, it says, among other things, it advocates for and supports practices that increase trust and trustworthiness, building ethical considerations into how data is collected, managed and used, ensuring equity around who accesses, uses and benefits from data and engaging widely with affected people and organizations. Um, now, of course, it, you know, Adobe, Microsoft and SAP aren't going to voluntarily just kind of completely become Kind of social cooperatives or anything like that but but um but maybe there is here also a way that this open data initiative can move beyond being principally a shared data store for business applications and can perhaps add some value um, by clearly addressing considerations around ethical collection management and use of data and so on um and then i think it would be much it would you know it's already interesting as a kind of you know, an industry kind of move, mm. um, but it could be, I think, potentially even more interesting and could really um, level up overall industry uh, thinking and practical action around the power of data in our society. So I think there could, there's some interesting angles there that could be could be kind of uh, explored more, and I'm I'm, I'm really keen to see um, if some of that happens. Mm. So it's almost like a, a kind of um... Uh, governance practice trickle down in a, in a way. What, you know, the problems that they will need to, they, you know, uh, Adobe, SAP, and Microsoft will need to address in order for this to work, to work ethically, to work satisfactorily for the customers of those companies. Is it's good stuff to learn about if that can be um, adopted as as uh, things that help other um, data collection practices, I guess, around and in other areas potentially. So is that kind of what, what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah, I think you put it really well. And I think, I mean, going back to something that you've done a fair amount of work around, um, in, um, implementation of the GDPR. So even mm. if you if you think about it kind of very practically, think about okay, if they if they want to take this, you know, off the off the PowerPoint and make it real for customers, they're going to have to think about what it means for the for for their clients and their and their um, their ability to um, meet the requirements of the GDPR and I mm. think there are like we've said many times before there are two ways you can really do that you can go okay what's the minimum we can get away with and really yes. do it very defensively or you can you can kind of do a jujitsu move on it and say um, you know how can we use the force of the GDPR 
actually to take us further? Um, how can, yeah. can we actually turn this around and, and be, be positive about what it requires, but actually turn those things into benefits? And I think that could be a really, really interesting development. Mm. And if they put all that that weight and muscle behind it, then you know their their, their governance jujitsu shenanigans um, could hopefully bear some fruit. Um, assuming they make all that open too. Interesting. Mm. It's the data privacy moonshot, guys. Potentially. So let's talk about partial occlusion. I, I'm thinking it, this is nothing to do with kind of. Um, you know, eclipses, moon. So, <laughs> it's nothing, nothing lunar. No, nothing lunar, nothing solar. Um, so, okay, so here, what I'm talking about uh, partial occlusions and expected appearances, I, I said at the top about how these affect uh, the confidence that, that AI uh, vision systems, image recognition systems have in, in correctly identifying objects and, and so on. So, what I'm talking about. Uh, are really the issues that that, um, uh, that that these systems have in determining what's in its field of view and, and how that why that can be can be quite concerning. Um, recently, a couple of groups of researchers have uh, published papers uh, showing how they're able to get the the TensorFlow Object Detection API um, into a right pickle, really, with some really quite simplistic changes in in the sorts of images that the the model have been trained to recognise. So, in uh, the most recent examples of all this that the researchers did, uh, all they did was was copy and paste bits of the original image into other parts of the frame. So, say, uh, duplicating a cat uh, in a picture. So there are now two cats, one behind the other, lying across a keyboard, or or uh, pasting in a picture of an object you wouldn't expect to encounter in that scenario, in that scene. So, uh, cutting and pasting a picture of an elephant into uh, a picture of somebody's living room, say. Uh, and what they observed was that the API really struggled to identify many of the objects in the picture in, in each case, things that it was quite happily, uh, easily able to do with, with some confidence before. Um, you know, the, the confidence factor of what it thinks it's found goes down, and sometimes it completely incorrectly identifies things, it gets wildly inaccurate uh, as even its best guess. And there are a, a couple of effects at work here, um, and both of them, I think, illustrate how the way in which um, object recognition AI right now is, is rarely a match for, for the human brain. Um, so where the new objects were pasted in, uh, the AI struggled because it was presented with a scene that just didn't seem right based on what it had learnt uh, before from its model, from its training data. And so it just couldn't perform. It didn't have anything else to fall back on to help it complete the task, whereas a human being would have, you know, X years of, of, of being in its environment to um, to refer to for, for to, to help it out. So whilst mm. you and I might see a picture of an elephant in somebody's living room and think, oh, somebody's brought an elephant around. No, they probably wouldn't think that. They'd think, oh, hang on, that's a bit odd, but I can at least recognise what you know, the various constituent parts here because I've seen elephants before and I've seen living rooms before. Uh, and standard lamps and television and so on in separate contexts. And this isn't enough to mess with my head to the extent I'm going to give up and cry. However, the training data that focuses on, on the, an AI on its image recognition is often too too bounded and too focused for it to be able to cope with wild, outlying, improbable scenes. It's not likely to possess such a sense of the absurd. So it fails. And actually what the researchers proved was this was you know, it's quite a brittle system if you wanted to set it up to fail. And then when um, they introduced other things into an image that uh, didn't seem quite like, right, and they partly 
obstruct or occlude uh, images of things that it really should have no trouble identifying, this also sends you know, the API into a complete tizzy because of the way it's trained to evaluate what it sees you know, within a bounded area um, for, for potential matches. We've all seen you know, the, the AI's eye view if you like, where there's an image and then overlaid, there's the sort of colored rectangles everywhere saying things like chair, 50%, person, 84%, and so on. Um, sort of illustrate how, it, how it's interpreting the frame. But if that area that it's looking uh, within has just been cropped a little too weirdly because there's something else uh, across, its, across its path, partially occluding it, then you know, uh, the examples the researchers came up with, it thinks that a cow's head in a picture is actually a horse's head, say, despite the fact that the other side of the offending occluding element, there's you know eighty percent of the rest of the cow just just sitting there, lying there, waiting to be recognised. It misses all of that. It doesn't put two and two or cow and cow together. It completely fails. Um, this is really shaping up to be the podcast of the cows today, isn't it? Anyway, um, so again, you see, you, know, you and I were taking the whole picture. We'd look at the whole thing, and our brain's very good at filling in gaps and, and getting it right. We've got a lot more experience to bring to bear. Okay, sure, there are times when optical illusions can trick you and can be kind of fun but that's not the kind of fun you want your vision system in your self-driving car to suffer from too often and there's the thing we're more and more relying on ai and machine learning and deep learning algorithms so on to automate you know, everything from from metadata generation and tagging tagging objects within vast uh, image libraries or the frames of a video so you can discover the right content later on or or you know trigger actions based on what the system's just seen in a kind of autonomous car example and a lot of the time we're doing this without really being fully cognizant of the limitations of the model you know the extent of the training data the boundaries that the system is designed to operate within to guarantee those high confidence values for its work and so on so i think there's a risk that if they're being put to work outside of their comfort zones, if you like, and then ever more complex layers of, of processing and chains of services and so on are, are put in, into place that rely upon the veracity of the outputs from those, those vision systems and, um, from a place much higher up in the, in the application stack. And I guess I'm making the point that um, this is another sort of attack of the real world uh, problem in that it pays to be aware of uh, these things and to design in, in countermeasures to mitigate the limitations of your, your AI, your machine learning models and the services that you use and the reliance you, you place on it, not just in image recognition for content as per these examples, but you know, other, other avenues too. We're, as we've said in you know, many um, conversations before, we're, we're nowhere near having unbounded general AI yet. We're not even close to reliable general image recognition and vision systems that won't get fooled less frequently than the human eye. Um, the, the tragic case of the, the car that accelerated in autopilot mode because it seemingly mistook a passing truck pulling a white trailer for empty road and sky. And that's just one case in point. Never underestimate the myriad cues that humans take from, from their environment to augment you know, sensory interpretation. It's not uh, just a case of being able to take in and quickly process an entire field of view. It's also being mindful of other knowledge the brain has about its surroundings, such as, you know, I know the sort of area I'm in because I remember getting here. Um, I've seen it before, so I determined object X is more likely to be A than B, and so on. And knowing how, how to match all that up, and, you know, supporting or challenging the evidence coming in through, you know, through other uh, senses, you know, sound, feel, touch, smell, whatever, um, that helps too. 
And of course, it is feasible for your AI to corroborate with m multiple data sources now, uh, such as uh, perhaps adapting a short list of object identification um, in the light of how it understands lighting and reflections to be affected by known weather conditions at the time and so on. But until AI's situational intelligence, if you like, is able to bring together all this sort of stuff quickly and reliably enough, uh, having built up an experience of possible plausible scenarios that help to either reinforce or to challenge its model, I'm afraid we are going to see more pictures tagged as medical experiments in half cow, half horse equibovines, and, and it may never recognize the elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear it was all to get that last line <laughs> oh did you start that just with that that last line in mind that's but, it and then i then i thought of an entire segment to lead up to the punchline <laughs> all the best joke writers so uh this week we've talked about we talked about smart cows and uh, the challenges of of the field as it were, we've talked <laughs> about uh, the Open Data Initiative from Adobe, Microsoft, and SAP, and we've talked about, you know, fooling visual recognition systems and the challenges and the limitations of those. Um, once again, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot, and I hope you have too, dear listener. Um, we're always interested in your feedback. We're always interested in finding people we can talk to. So um, please do let us know if you've got any uh, inside info on any of those things. Thank you.